Hello, my name is Zoe Fraudbenar, author of Super Fandom, and I'm here on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. My biggest pet peeve with the supplement industry is how easy it can be to hijack people's innate urges to improve themselves and to be part of of a a health movement uh, for personal commercial gain. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and owner of Woodstock Vitamins. You can find me at woodstockvitamins.com, also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube as Woodstock Vitamins. Check us out on Twitter, at NoBSVitamins, which is probably the best Twitter handle in the world. We've got a very interesting show today, a lot of topics coming up that many of us may not even be aware of things. So our guest today is Zoe Fraud Blenar. Uh, she's a faculty member at the NYU Interactive Telecom communications program and the Studio 20 program at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. She's a co-founder and chief designer of the crowdsourced toy company Squishable, and she is an author. She's written Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. You can find more about Zoe at binaryspark.com, B-I-N-A-R-Y-S-P-A-R-K.com. So let's get right into it. Let's start at the beginning because most of the people that are listening probably don't even know that this is a thing. So what's fandom? Ooh, that's interesting. People <laughs> usually ask me what the book is about, but they don't usually ask me what fandom is. That's, that's <laughs> fascinating. Usually uh, <laughs> you, you manage to, to hit a new one right out of the gate. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting to the core of it all. I know? like it. I like it. <laughs> fandom, it's an ancient phenomenon. It's the human urge we have to form groups around pieces of pop culture, whether that's uh, a shared love of uh, a particular God figure, whether it's a, a shared love of a celebrity or a book or a movie, uh, all of these, these things that pull us together to form a community in order to, to appreciate it, to contribute to that thing, to help it be better. Gotcha. So like the back in the caveman days, we had people that were um, like making their lips puffy and then like uh, dressing in this certain kind of loincloth and like they became the influencers of the time. I can only saying? hope so. <laughs> I can only hope so. So this is a unique cultural phenomenon uh, that uh, uh, seems to be a part of human nature. But it seems to me that this idea of fandom is bigger now than it's ever been and more important than it's ever been. Do you feel that same way? It really is. It's only in the last maybe 200 years that humans have had the spare time and the spare money, to be honest, you know, with the wage economy yeah. uh, in order to, to really be able to fully start taking this to, to the extremes, to go after these things that they love so much and also to connect with each other about them. So it's really only since the rise of, you know, say concert halls that we've had the concepts of, of a celebrity that you could follow from job to job. It's only with the rise of trains that we've had this concept of going to a concert, being able to go and then come back home again instead of, you know, just waiting for, for something to come to near your house. 
Right, P.T. Barnum to come to town, right. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, the circus comes to town. It's it's really only the last 200 years that technology has allowed people to do this. Yeah. But then, of course, within the last, say, 20, 30 years, that's happened again with technology one more time, where now digital technology has, has allowed people to do this even on another level. So we're kind of almost almost on a bit of a staircase of fandom going on here. Yeah. So let's talk about what are your kind of classic examples of when somebody wants to know more about fandom? You know, it really depends on what kind of fandom, right? I mean, we've seen this huge rise, say, in comics fandom. Yeah. And that's that's followed this kind of classic, classic trajectory where we have something which you know, even 20 years ago, you wouldn't be caught dead going into a, a comics movie, a superhero movie. Right. Uh, you know, not if you wanted the cool guys and chicks to talk to you anyway. You certainly wouldn't ever take someone there for a date. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there was this huge shift. And, and that's actually due to a whole bunch of different uh, cultural phenomenon all at once. And now, of course, it's become extremely acceptable. In fact, you know, very fashionable to wear a uh, comic book-themed shirt or a superhero shirt or, or, you know, have figurines or buy stuff for your kids. Every middle-aged dad has a Captain America Shield t-shirt from Target, I think. <laughs> you know? That sounds about right. And, <laughs> and even the fact that, that a mainstream outlet like Target would touch it is something that we forget is, is very, very new. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. What are the things that um, like influence this? Like, so, so yeah, when you say fandom, I think of geeks and nerds. And uh, for the people listening, I guess I'm getting to supplements. Trust me, <laughs> but let's. Uh, well, I want everybody to understand this concept from a psychological standpoint because there is a, a mental health piece to this whole thing. I'm sure we can get into. So, what kinds of things are uh, have influenced this rise of, or made it acceptable for us to be? Because you know, I thought fandom is like geeks and nerds. It's just Star Trek and Star Wars and that kind of thing. Well, what's interesting is it is, uh, but it's not just geeks and nerds. The internet is really kind of the, the secret sauce here that's lowered this barrier to entry. And it's lowered the barrier to entry for nerdy, geeky fandoms. So, you know, you can, you can be into, say, comics fandom and no one has to know. And that's, that's right. been very, very powerful that people can do this stuff in secret and grow their fandom in secret and their mainstream friend groups don't have to know how nerdy and geeky you are. So that's had, that's had a very big effect. The extension of childhood has had a big effect as, as people, more and more people go to college and then more and more people go to grad school. Uh, and of course, the way the economy has been, that keeps people, children longer just because it takes longer to get a job. You might live at home for longer. It takes longer to afford your own place. So the longer childhood is, the more we fall back on these childhood uh, habits and, and power situations that we had when we were kids. So that's definitely made it more acceptable to be into these nerdy, geeky things. But what's interesting is both of these are situations that don't just affect nerdy, geeky things, right? You might be into something completely different uh, that perhaps beforehand you were embarrassed about being into or, or you felt like you were too grown up to be into. And now you can do those as well. Something like, you know, cheesy romance novels you wouldn't want anyone to know about. Now you can, you can just let it fly and no one has to know. Uh, in fact, there's an argument the entire success of uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise is because no one had to know that anyone was reading them. The you know rise of Kindle made it so no one had to know. Everyone could be a fan in secret. So while it's true it affected all these these nerdy properties, it then had this much larger effect on, say, well, to take it to your topic, uh, 
health situations, you know, things that perhaps you might be embarrassed to discuss beforehand, diets you might be embarrassed to discuss beforehand, lifestyles you might have been embarrassed to let people know you were doing. Now you can research and find out about them and join in and find other people who are into them too, without having to worry about getting made fun of. Right. So it seems like it's like a safe space for people to engage into these types of things. But then it's like they kind of poke their head out and and check around in the communities. And then it's like this little litmus test that they do to see if it's okay to talk about in public. And then once it's it's become known publicly that it's okay to talk about this, then it just it's kind of like the Care Bear rainbow power. It's just like out of the (laughs) chest comes their fandom. Right. Is there something to that cycle, like the idea that it starts out in secret and then comes to the mainstream? Very much. Much so. So back when academics first started studying fandom, there was this concept called fandom as utopia. And the idea was that fandom was this this safe space away from mainstream society where the few creative, you know, wonderful, uh, uh, the people who are too good for mainstream society could congregate and hang out with each other and be safe from, from this horrible, uncaring 1950s, 1960s world. Uh, so if you think of maybe Star Trek fandom or, or uh, hippie fandom, you know, these uh, places where, where people who felt like they were better than society could kind of come and, and be themselves. But it turned out very quickly, that's not actually the case. In fact, fans are just as, as horrible and mean to each other as anyone else is. What fandom really is, is a place for people who maybe often feel not so much rejected by society, but maybe where they can't express part of themselves in mainstream society where they can go and congregate and feel normal. And that normalizing ability, that feeling of taking what perhaps you felt judged for before and getting to feel like, well, here, it's actually a strength. It's actually something that people appreciate. And and, uh, in fact, I get status in, in this new, much smaller recreation of society for it. That's very, very empowering. So one of the most important purposes of fan groups is to make people feel like, you know, that weird thing that you're doing, nah, it's normal. We're all doing it. In fact, Let's see how good you can do it. Let's see if you can get status within the fan group for doing that weird thing. Right. So kind of normalizing these uh, otherwise rather fringe behaviors. Right. So what you're saying based on the hippie fandom is that Woodstock is the original place for American fandom because we're here in Woodstock. It's certainly a classic one. (laughs) It's probably the first time that a lot of people came together and realized that they weren't alone, which is the classic experience of fandom. I, I feel weird in my regular mainstream life. But here in this utopian community, I'm not alone. And, and in fact, what I'm doing could be normal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely we have normalized weird behavior here at a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say that fandom is a bad thing or is this a, a good thing? I'm kind of wondering, like, is this behavior in the modern day? Because you can see how fandom way back when was like a survival thing and probably uh, social hierarchy and, and all this other stuff kind of played into how societies evolved and, and kind of uh, survived together. Uh, but today, and it's like hyper-aggressive state, is, is it a bad thing or is it is it okay? What's your feeling on it? You know, in general, fandom is a very, very good thing, bar nothing, in general. Okay. People who are members of fan groups, they have a safety net built in. They have a community and those are very important things for mental well-being. So mentally, it's fantastic for people. People who are active members of a fan group usually report lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of depression, uh, definitely lower levels of loneliness, uh, which, which is a very, very you know, dangerous situation to be in. Uh, as you know, loneliness causes all kinds of health problems. Yeah. Uh, so 
from a, in a general sense, being in a fan group is fantastic for you, especially if it's a fan group with a very heavily social uh, aspect. And, and part of that is just because being part of a community is good for you. It's very important no matter what that community is built around. And partially it's because doing what's called the fan-like activities, the experiences that go into being a fan, uh, that can be very good for you. So activities like taking pilgrimages to places of importance to the fan group, uh, making content in service of that fan group, uh, you know, things like drawing and, and making music and creating arts and crafts, all these classic things that, that fans often do, making recipes, activities like, like socializing with each other, like evangelizing to new people. So all of those are very, very good for you and all things that fandom encourages. But... There's, yeah. there's a dark side. <laughs> there is a dark side. Yeah. Because I would imagine like this rise of Nazism is like a fandom type thing. So this is the dark side because <laughs> one of the points of fandom is to normalize otherwise fringe behavior. It means that you're kind of taking a step out of that, that Brownian motion of society, that, that motion which is constantly reminding you what is in fact normal. And normal is there for a reason. Sometimes it, it can be uh, harmful. But there's also normalcy that keeps us alive. You know, don't jump into this very deep pit filled with stakes is, in fact, a normal behavior that we should all probably follow. Right. So once you start losing track of what's normal and, and resetting on a new version, no, actually, it's normal to, say, starve ourselves. It's normal to take this bizarre pill. It's normal to, uh, you know, do this, this very fringe exercise routine. Um, once you start convincing yourself, because everyone you know is also doing that thing, that that kind of behavior is okay, um, it's very easy to lose track of of uh, what is in fact good for you and what isn't. It's very easy to get shared uh, toxicity. Shared toxicity. It's my new favorite term. It's a, it's a scary phrase. It, it means that you start chasing after hierarchy within the group to such an extent that the original aims of that group may even be lost. You know, it becomes so important to move up within that fan group's hierarchy that you become more and more dedicated to, to these possibly dangerous social norms that may exist within it. Yeah. So what are, do you have some examples of this shared toxicity? I mentioned the Nazism. What are some examples of where fandom's gone bad today? You know, there are lots of marketing examples where fandom has gone bad, but when you think of situations where fandom is actually potentially could be hurting the fans themselves. Okay. Uh, you know, health is actually one of, one of the classics. Uh, for example, in the early zeros, there were these uh, groups called pro-ana groups, which were uh, groups that sought to normalize anorexic-style behaviors. And oh. on one hand, it, it's actually a very supportive, wonderful, nurturing situation. You had people who perhaps were lost in eating disorders, and they felt like no one understood them. They felt isolated. Uh, and then to find other people who are also engaging in those behaviors, that probably was actually a very healthy, good thing. So it, fandom was serving its purpose in the sense that it, it helped people feel like they were connected, it helped them feel like they weren't so weird. But then you start getting the toxicity of, of trying to rise within those groups, of trying to prove your membership to each other, uh, of passing around information that otherwise probably wouldn't be passed around, tips and tricks and things that probably would be better enough for people who are uh, not in an unhealthy mental situation to, to delve too much into, uh, encouraging each other, supporting each other in situations where otherwise people may have gone and gotten actual professional help. 
really normalizing what is ostensibly from an outsider's point of view, very unhealthy, very scary, very dangerous behaviors. uh, And in fact, encouraging each other to do more of those instead of maybe encouraging people to get help. So it's, it's really a situation where uh, on one hand, yes, you want people to have support, but on the other hand, in fact, it depends on what you are supporting. Uh, and this this was really something which potentially hurt a lot of people. Uh, it's become less popular now, but they're still out there. Yeah. So the health and wellness space, you know, we have a lot of this. It's Some people refer to it as the cult of personality, where really the advice can be complete misinformation. The advice can be borderline malpractice. But just because I trust that person and they have the credentials and all of those kind of like logical fallacies are in play, people will blindly follow this person. Is that an example of fandom or is that another like mental issue that I should interview someone else about? It actually actually is. Celebrities are a specific type of fan object. We have we have lots of different types of fan objects. We have pieces of media and activities and brands. But celebrities are a really interesting category of fan object because there is often, not always, but often an actual real person floating around in there and in all of that uh, rumor and context and and franchise, you know, opportunities and, and branding there, there's actually a real person again, sometimes not always. And the issue with having a real person, someone who's unpredictable, someone who's fallible at the center of a fan object is that they can make mistakes. They're, they're just a person. In fact, they're being, they're being driven by, by commercial implications, just like everyone else. And we look to celebrities often as our filters. We're in a situation where uh, we're in massive information overload, uh, but overload is not, it's not really an information problem. It's not a data problem. Information overload is a filtering problem, right? We're constantly being hit by billions of pieces of information every second, you know, just even coming through our eyes and our ears. And obviously we're not overloaded by that. It's just that we're not yet used to how, say, the internet throws all this data, all this information at us. So often we end up looking to celebrities as nexuses for this information. You know, we we follow George Takai if we want funny memes and we follow, say, Jon Stewart because we want to know funny politics and uh, we follow your your favorite sports figure because we want to know what's going on in sports. We we look to these people to kind of uh, distill down what we should actually know for us. And quite often, when it comes to lifestyle information, celebrities are very very effective coaches because they often have aspirational lifestyles, lifestyles that we ourselves would probably like to have for ourselves. And so we look to them. We say, "Oh, I want to look like her." Perhaps I should find out what she does for her beauty routine. Perhaps I should find out what he does for his fitness routine. And they become that filter for us for this very aspirational lifestyle coaching. The problem is they have access to a lot more resources than us as regular people do. We're never going to be able to live, say, Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle because we don't have a team of stylists and a team of trainers working on our our bodies every second of the day because that's her job. She needs to have those because being herself is is what she makes money at. So it means that any information that we in fact do get filtered through her is almost inherently flawed because it's never going to tell the whole story of how she got that way. 
Well, that and now, um, because of the brands realizing the power of fandom and this uh, this cult of personality, it's it's almost biased uh, completely. Like not even a portion, you know, portionally, like you're saying, it's everything. Uh, because a brand can pay these people hundreds of thousands of dollars to just mention their product or their um, vacation place or or whatever, and um, and it's not even really what this effective coach uh, living this aspirational lifestyle has. Many people don't realize that there are these huge marketplaces online where brands can bid on and how much they are willing to pay various celebrities to shill for them. Uh, you yeah. know, it's we all think of, of deals where someone's publicist contacts someone else's publicist and this all happens on a high level. Uh, that's not actually the case. I mean, if you have 10 bucks, you can go onto one of these websites and simply say, I want someone who's in, I don't know, cosplay to talk about how great my makeup is. And, and it'll give you a list of 5,000 people in cosplay who will talk about how great your makeup is. And you can look at their pictures and click on them and then go check out in a cart. And two days later, they'll be talking about how great your, your makeup is. Yeah. Um, it's a very impersonal sort of a process uh, and deeply automated. Um, it's the kind of thing that uh, you can really do without ever talking to the celebrity, without ever even interacting with them besides sending them the pictures you want them to post on their Instagram account. And the check. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think it bears repeating. There is a marketplace where brands can bid for celebrities and influencers at all levels, whether it's 500 followers or 500,000 or 50 million to shill for their product. So people need to understand that. And, and this is why I wanted to talk to you and, uh, specifically because of all of these things are exploitation of something basic to human evolution and, and human functioning in society. Yeah, very much uh, so. There's a phenomenon called Posse syndrome, P-O-S-S-E, Posse syndrome, which it's... Yeah, don't spell that one wrong. <laughs> Posse syndrome... <laughs> Uh, it's a, a phenomenon that arose probably, you know, back on the savanna. If you have a, a, a great hunter or a great basket maker or, or someone who had a very high status within a community, it made sense for them to have people around them at all times who are trying to learn this amazing skill that they had. People who would maybe do favors for them, people who would, uh, you know, give them gifts in return for being close to them and getting some of that status. And what it means is that as humans, we've developed this neurological urge to pay attention to anyone who seems like they have a lot of other people paying attention to them. If a lot of people are paying attention to this guy, well, maybe he can teach me how to hunt gazelles better. I better pay attention to him. And what social media often does is it hijacks that urge towards posse theory towards posse syndrome, you can literally see how many followers they have. They, they have that social proof right there on their account. Oh my God, 200,000 people are following this person. I better pay attention to them. Maybe they're going to teach me how to hunt gazelles. But that's not the case. They easily may have bought those followers. Those followers may be following for a different reason. Those followers may all be in a different country. Just that number isn't enough to tell us that we should, in fact, be triggering our, our posse syndrome. And of course, with the internet, their posse could be the entire globe. We're never going to be able to satisfy our, our craving for being close to 
all the people who also have a posse. Everyone has a posse. Yeah. So um, we've really hijacked that, that posse syndrome into tricking us to thinking it's important that we pay attention to people with high follower accounts when that's not actually, of course, the case. Do you think uh, at the time of this podcast, of course, Instagram has been kicking around the idea publicly of removing the likes and follow numbers? What kind of influence do you think that would have on the posse syndrome and what we're talking about? I think that removing the follower count on Instagram would be disastrous for Instagram, but wonderful for everyone else, <laughs> just in, <laughs> in the sense that uh, it would stop short-circuiting our, our neurological urges uh, that are telling us to pay attention to people based on follower accounts as opposed to what we actually care about. So I, I think it would probably allow people to start following people who they're actually interested in again, instead of constantly fighting this evolutionary urge to simply pay attention to people with big groups. Right. The, the modern systems are made to hack into these um, traits of human nature to exploit and to get them to do things. So like if I, uh, for example, had a supplement brand and maybe a podcast and uh, maybe a pharmacy, what could I do to uh, exploit fandom to make my business this rapid success if I had less scruples? Yeah, I mean, let's if, put a plan into play. <laughs> <laughs> if you have, if you have no scruples, well, the sky is the limit. I mean, on one hand, there are, are things that that someone could do, which, all right, they're not exactly shady. Uh, for example, forming fan groups obviously is is always going to be helpful for anyone, uh, especially someone who who does have commercial imperatives. So, making sure that your fans have a platform to express themselves on, uh, making sure that they feel like they're in a supportive, welcoming space, because remember, utopianism is a big part of building a fan group, making sure that that uh, they're being love-bombed, which is actually a term that comes from cult creation, where you, you flood your followers with dopamine, making them feel like they're accepted and loved and appreciated. So all of those are, are things that uh, a group might do to get their group started. But if all you wanted to do would be simply to encourage your fans to buy your stuff, yes. then yeah, you, you can't go wrong with posse syndrome. You know, make it look like there are a lot more people paying attention to a specific brand or a specific person. And there might be uh, faking that social proof, perhaps by faking the comments, faking the reviews, uh, faking that follower account, anything that would let people know, hey, there's a big hunter over here. I better pay attention to what he's saying because he's the one who's getting all the gazelles. Yeah, the faking the numbers is almost uh, par for the course, or or just a, a a piece of the the business anymore. You know, when you get started, they say have your family and friends review your products, have your families and friends review your podcasts. You know, just to get those numbers up there, so that way it, it tacks on. I mean, we have twenty five reviews, I think, on the podcast right now, and I think uh, three of them are real. <laughs> you know, the rest of it is my family going, "Go, Neil." You know. <laughs> But that's what kind of has to happen. And like, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. Let's talk about reviews, actually. Let, let's dig into that concept, because I, I always like to say people make health choices, like they're figuring out what hotel they're going to stay at on vacation or what restaurant they're going to go to. They look to review. So they might find a blog article, which could inherently be biased because it's part of the whole marketing uh, complex for, for the brand. And then they end up on a review uh, site or some sort of forum where there's this social proof. So let's talk about reviews as it being so important to us in, uh, in the part of fandom. 
Yes. Well, people find fan groups usually during periods of change, during periods of upheaval, periods where they may be questioning, who are they? Uh, where do I belong? What can I do to succeed? You know, these, these periods where, where you have unanswered questions, perhaps self-identity may be up in the air. Often we come to our most deep felt fandoms during, you know, high school when everything is up in the air and everything's changing, our bodies are changing, our social lives are changing, our family relationships are changing. Uh, often we come to fandoms at the beginning of college when we, we've often made a move for the first real time. Uh, we come to them when we have a kid for the first time uh, or, or, you know, the fifth time, but, but, you know, these periods of upheaval, where we're questioning who we are. So these periods of identity searching are prime times for us to be taken advantage of. When we're looking to the world for answers, the world is happy to give us answers. And that answer is often, well, buy my stuff. If you buy my stuff, I'm going to answer this for you. If you buy my organic baby toy, you will be a good parent. You're curious about how to be a good parent? I have the answer. Uh, you're trying to you know, uh, get through puberty and, and you don't look the way you want to? Well, I have the answer. Buy my cream and your face will clear up. So during these periods where we're questioning so many things, reviews really carry much more weight than if we weren't so desperate for answers during those periods. And really, when we're reaching out to the world for, for help, not everyone who's going to answer is going to have our best interests at heart. And that's, that's a very hard thing to keep in mind, especially when we're at our most vulnerable, which is when we're looking to new fandoms. But it, it is, in fact, the case. And, and it's... It can be it can be scary. Uh, that's when we're not always thinking the clearest. Where we're looking for anything that's going to solve the problem. Do you think if uh, Ernest Hemingway was alive, he'd have a Twitch channel where people would watch him write? I bet if Hemingway was alive, he would not have a Twitch channel where he would watch people write. But he would probably have a Twitch channel where he railed about how everyone else shouldn't be letting people watch them write. Right. So. The modern comforts of today. Um, imagine the the uh, the voices and the influencers, quote unquote, of yesteryear in in the modern world. Right. Uh, imagine what that would look like today. Where would, would these people fall in this fandom circle? It just blows my mind. The stuff that we sit and watch and do. People will literally watch someone else play a video game. That's a nobody. Somebody will listen to a podcast of a pharmacist from Woodstock. Right. So there are these crazy bubbles that can be made and there is a lot of good that can come out of it but you know my question is is how do we we enjoy something and how do we feel part of a group but do so in a healthy way you know one of the most important things that a fan group can do is it can help you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself that's a very romantic very powerful feeling but at the same time it should also help you feel more like an individual and that seems like it's a paradox, but, but actually it's not. There's almost nothing as individualistic in the world as picking a new group to conform to. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this, this urge to satisfy both of these urges at the, at the same time, this urge to be part of something bigger than ourselves, this urge to be a, an individual who is special, a special snowflake all, all by ourselves, and it's just us. A good fan group can satisfy both. It can normalize the things that maybe we want to be normalized, the things that we feel like make us special. Uh, we realize that we're not alone. We have support. We can, we can be ourselves because we have backup. But it can still give us that freedom to make our own decisions and to 
express ourselves in the way we want to without that, that peer pressure. And a good fan group can do that. If a good fan group balances those two without tipping too far one way or the other, it, it's able to let people feel like part of a group uh, without smothering them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the important thing. Is it possible to trick a fan? You know, fans often are looked down on as somehow that they're, they're being duped, that they're being tricked into their fans and that they're being exploited. And while it's true, it is possible to exploit fans uh, by maybe not giving them the whole story or convincing them to do something they wouldn't do otherwise. At the same time, there is this concept called a smart fan. A smart fan is, is the, the phenomenon that fans understand at some level what they're doing. They understand that they're playing make-believe. Uh, and as the second that, they, that they're not getting something useful out of that fan relationship, that they're going to go find something else. In fact, you have situations where entire fan groups suddenly jump from one fan object to another. Uh, perhaps one one supplement to another, one singer to another, one video game to another. Right. When they feel like the first one isn't fully feeding their craving <laughs> anymore. Right. So while it's true, it, it is possible to exploit fans. It, it at the same time, it's harder than people think. Just because fans are smart, fans understand that what they're doing uh, is by choice, and they can just as easily choose to do something else. Huh. Very, very interesting, because you would think that it's ripe for the picking, but you're basically saying that lots of fans are very uh, astute in what they're, in they're doing in their decision making. So it's not like almost everybody is, fits into that bin of, I can be tricked. Yeah, not to get too, uh, too philosophical here, but there's a concept left over from Marxism, this concept of cultural dupes, this idea that consumers are like little children who don't understand that they're being taken advantage of. And that's just not the case. Uh, consumers are are often very informed, maybe not about their products, but certainly about why they're they're into what they're into. Uh, and if they suddenly decide that what they're into isn't serving the purpose, they will they will go find something else. Uh, they're not they're not nearly as gullible as sometimes people uh, think, which in fact throws into stark relief the fa- times when when in fact they are being tricked, they are being gullible. Uh, because it means something something really unhealthy and bad is going on. That's not how fandom is supposed to work. Yeah. Do you have any tips uh, for people to be aware, to watch out for? What things do they have to avoid when they're participating in these fan groups, whether they know it or not? Ooh, any fan group where it seems like it's more important to gain status within the group and gain acceptance in the group than to be yourself and, and do what you want to do. It means that fan group isn't working on your behalf anymore. <laughs> and they do not have your best interests at heart. The point of the fan group... you have examples of that? Uh, ooh, let's see. Really, any kind of toxic fan group. Um, let's see if we can think of some good toxic ones. Amway? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Really, really, just uh, kidding. Any, any exploitative group. But, hmm, what would be a good one specifically like that? Think of a fan group such as bodybuilding, okay. where the whole goal of the fan group is to help you become the best version of you, to help you improve your health, to help you improve your looks, to maybe improve your confidence. This is, this is a wonderful goal for a fan group, to help you find other people who have similar goals, to learn from them, to support each other, to be there for each other. 
you know, maybe if things aren't going well, maybe to give each other tips. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing for a fan group to do. On the other hand, if at some point just being the biggest in the group becomes most important, uh, then that can obviously lead to, say, uh, passing around tips for doping or, or for unhealthily pushing yourself into exercises your body can't take and now gaining status within the group, showing that you're better than other people in the group. That starts becoming more important and it can normalize behaviors which probably don't have your best interests at heart. So noticing when that line starts to get crossed, when it's no longer supporting you and your goals, but actually changing those goals into group status and hierarchy style goals, that's probably when you might want to run for the hills. So are you then saying that the the worst type of fan groups aren't the ones that are promoting negative stuff? Like, is ISIS a fan group? Like, the, the, again, the rise of white supremacy, that's obviously a, a fandom type uh, exposure. So those are actually okay from a social perspective, even though the output is Ooh. negative? It's a philosophical question. I'm trying to <laughs> The parts of our brains which drive us to form communities... Uh, there's only one part of our brain that does that, really, uh, in terms of, of trying to get us to, to form groups around pieces of culture. And, of course, the piece of culture, what that culture might be, there are lots of different options for it. So it certainly piggybacks on a lot of the same urges, whether or not it's, it's causing similar effects. That's probably up to debate. But uh, this, this human urge to find like-minded people and, and collect with them it can certainly show itself in a lot of ways, some of them rather ugly, obviously. You uh, had this great quote. I'm, I'm sure it's been said before, but I think it was just uh, an aha moment for me. It's not the medicine, it's the spoon. And that was a really like mind-blowing thing. I pretty much like sat on that for the rest of the weekend. It was, it was great. So <laughs> it's, it's very much, uh, well, all right, actually, you know, it's, it's funny because that's actually uh, on topic for what you were just mentioning. Mm-hmm. You ask if some of these negative fandoms, these fandoms which we now know are very destructive, certain political fandoms, certain religious fandoms, which we know, you know, ended up turning out very badly for the followers. You know, you end up with with cult situations or mass suicides, you know, really awful, dark stuff. Yeah. And the question about, is that good for the followers? No, obviously not. But the reason why they sneak in, I think, a lot of times uh, under the door is, is this concept of the fandom itself, when you get down to it, doesn't really matter. The topic of the fandom isn't nearly as important as how it makes people feel and how it supports them for their own personal goals and, and dreams. It's, it's very much not the medicine, it's the spoon. It's the, the act of participating in a fandom is much more important a lot of times than what that fandom actually is for people. So how can we engage in what we love and be a part of a group, but then not be exposed to or fall victim to the exploitive stuff that happens? As long as being in a fan group feels good, you're probably in okay territory. As long as you feel like it's being supportive of you, as long as you feel like the people are, are, uh, have your own best interests at heart and are being respectful of your own personal goals and feelings, then you know what? Keep doing it. It's probably good for you. 
As soon as you feel like mm-hmm. those fan affiliations are being used just for commercial gain, maybe to sell you things, maybe to influence your opinions, uh, maybe to change your behaviors in ways that you're not comfortable with necessarily or that you wouldn't ever have considered if it wasn't for the hierarchy within that fan group, reconsider. They may not have your best interests at heart. Yes. All right, great. That was an amazing insight into something that a lot of people probably don't know exists. I think it's important for people to understand because from a a mental health and even a wellness standpoint, we have to understand how our brains work and how we are motivated to do the things that we do. And it's great to have this modern world where if you like to read about people who quilt polka related blankets, then you have that ability to join these groups and really um, let your passion flow. But at the same time, there's all of these hacks that can be done to make you do things that you wouldn't really do originally. So I think that the concept of fandom and understanding how um, this all works and how it applies to modern times is, is super critical for our listeners to hear, especially because that's part of our message is the myths and misinformation around the wellness space. And, and a lot of that comes from this cult of personality and the identification of who am I and what kind of life am I living, a healthy life or uh, a fit life. So so I want to thank you for taking the time to, one, not totally get creeped out when we uh, started talking <laughs> at Social Media Marketing World and having a great conversation there and then following it up here and giving us some insight to fandom. You're a real expert on this. So I want to say thank you so much. Absolutely. My complete pleasure. So that was amazing. I am very happy to have made uh, acquaintances with Zoe and have such a great resource available to you, the listeners, about this topic. Again, if you want to learn more about Zoe, visit BinarySpark.com. What I'm going to do to kind of share the love of Zoe here is I've bought 10 copies of her book. And what I'd like you guys to do is to like our page on Facebook and share it. And we're going to randomly pick 10 people that do that to get a free copy of Zoe's book. We'll ship it right to you. So I want to thank you guys for listening. And don't forget to visit us at the Big Mouth Pharmacist on Facebook, like the posts of Zoe and share it. And I will pick one random winner. She's available again at BinarySpark.com. And her book is Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. Thanks again for listening. And we will catch you next time.